0: Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com.
1: Now, the Federal Drive with Tom Temin.
2: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Peter Masurli and Michelle Sandiford. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, the administration's DEI leaders brings experience from work at the state level. Plus, what does the Veterans Affairs Department do when disaster strikes one of its record storage facilities? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first... The clock started ticking in May for the Defense Department to implement its first-ever records management strategy. Secretary Lloyd Austin signed off on the guidance, in part as a response to the criticism the Pentagon received for not preserving text messages after the January 6 riots on Capitol Hill. Mark Patrick is the chief records officer for DOD. Joining in April, he tells executive editor Jason Miller about how the records management strategy will help solve the mismatch between systems and records lifespan.
3: There are three main themes, curation, automation, and governance, which is aligned with the DOD's data strategy, which came out in 2020.
4: The idea behind this strategy is not just, hey, we need to manage our records better, but really push DOD where, I think you mentioned in there in the the conference, better decision-making, use records, help drive decisions. When you look at why this strategy is important beyond the fact records management is important, what's the bigger picture? So the bigger picture the tagline
3: on the strategy. It talks about decision advantage, the concept that our institutional memory for day-to-day business operations and mission, not just records that are permanent that need to go to the National Archives. So we believe that managing records for day-to-day operations, that compliance sort of comes along for the ride. And we are very concerned about ensuring that those decisions are quick that they are academically rigorously researched and that they, you know, are,
4: are gonna lead to the best outcomes for the department. In many ways, records are history. You gotta learn from history. What, what happened before, where can we find it? Is that the part of the theme here? Is that understanding what happened previously helps us make a better decision next time?
3: Absolutely, that's right there. So in many cases, uh, as you have military staffs, folks are coming and going every couple of years, having that knowledge not leave the organization is all about good records management, and ensuring that, that can, you can retrieve sort of the last time that particular situation occurred, geographically, specifically around a particular task, so that you are making historically consistent decisions and that you don't depart from historical precedent unless you're deliberately
4: deciding to do so for a specific reason. And we're going to get to that in a second because one of the parts of this strategy is uh, a new implementation memorandum. Uh, before I go there, uh, you released the strategy in May. You mentioned, uh, I'm going to ask, so what have you done for me lately? Where were you heading next with the strategy? How does implementation look? What are some of those steps you have taken and will continue to take?
3: So the biggest one there is the release of the new DOD Manual 8180.01. You can find it online by Googling DODM eighty eighty one point zero one. It replaces an, a standard from 2007 that was an IT standard for records management applications. It's a big shift in approach uh, away from just certifying software to ensuring that the deployment of software meets records management standards, so it focuses on how that software is deployed,
4: not just certifying it and saying, here's a piece of certified software. This is a very technical manual. I think you mentioned about 88 pages. Without going into too much of the weeds, generally speaking, what should folks take from this? What should they focus on? Are there certain sections or certain pieces and parts that you would say, hey, if you're only going to read... 20 pages, here's the 20 pages you could read, or, or here's the, the section that maybe is, is among the most important. So the audience is
3: the IT audience and acquisition professionals, and it creates an environment, we hope, that will bring them together with the records community because all of that together is what's going to be important for success in acquisition and employment. And so I would say it depends on who you are, what you should read. So obviously you should be familiar with it if you're a records professional, and then you should bring it to the attention of your acquisition and IT folks and work with them to see what the so-what is for you and your organization.
4: I know you're new, so this was probably in development before you got there. The shift made sense for many reasons. What's the impact that you all hope that the DoD CIO's office hopes that this has more broadly on DoD having this new directive out and this new memorandum to drive kind of that new view of how records management should be implemented versus, hey, here's just approved software?
3: The sort of ideal vision is that records lifecycle is managed across all three security domains and that to the greatest extent possible, that the processes are automated. So this uh, gives you reliable information for decision. It also minimizes the non-core competency work that knowledge workers have to do because that's baked into the work area that they have provided to them. And so, ultimately, is to get it all governed, uh, discoverable, you know, and that the temporary records will go away when they're supposed to and the permanent ones will be preserved
4: You talk about governance and it's a good segue because you also mentioned a records management tiger team that has been in place for a few years now and that's continuing to evolve talk a little bit again i know happened before you got there but talk a little bit about that tiger team and why was it stood up and what does it do and then where is it going
3: so it sort of evolved out of the deployment of microsoft 365 post-covid because there was a great acceleration and a recognition there were a lot of technical details that needed to be put into place with regard to records management. It wasn't just about allowing the workforce to collaborate. All of that digital information they were creating needs to be baked in and in a organization as big as DOD with fourteen tenants just in the unclassified environment, it became obvious that a team of folks needed to get together to be able to deal with these things as soon as possible. And it's turned out that this team, which was envisioned initially to be something more temporary, has become more of a standing body, and so it is starting to evolve into larger governance structures within the IT part of the department.
4: And the idea here is to ensure at least some sort of baseline standards are set for how records are managed in this environment. Once we get into this cloud-based environment, it's it's obviously records could be it's much more agile. There's there's much more. Oh, this records can be created and, and destroyed, if you will, much more quickly. and, and it's Defensively just, destroyed. <laughs> Defensively destroyed. Well, good, good point. And also by accidentally destroyed. But I guess my, my my question comes back around to how is this Tiger team and, and whatever kind of as it evolves going to help ensure that all the services and the defense agencies are going down the right path?
3: I mean, aspirationally, standardization creates an environment where automation can occur, that can do can get to this vision where... The information because the volume is so intense there's no way even if we were we just don't have the people to do it manually so automation is paramount but we still want to access that information so ultimately we get to standardization then automation and that matures the environment so that good decisions can be made using that institutional memory.
4: One of the charts you showed was kind of the current process for records management and the hopeful the the to be as is I'll go back to my enterprise architecture days. What are you all working on out of your office again over the next year or so to kind of continue to mo- push toward that that to be environment? I don't have the 5-year plan memorized. However, that element is essentially
3: talking about the requirement for a new type of full-time position which is essentially an IT specialist with a records management subspecialty. And we've used terms like records technologist, records architect. So they may have a traditional IT specialty within the department, but there's almost a a significant subspecialty here around that, and we see that needing to be a part of the records team, a full-time person that does this role uh, because of the complexity of electronic records management.
4: From your perspective, uh, this five-year strategy is going to drive a lot of what you do. Do you have certain specific projects, initiatives, goals, for lack of a better word, that you're trying to get done over the next six or nine months? Anything that stands out that you'd say, hey, if we talk again in six months or nine months or a year from now, this is what I hope to have accomplished? The instruction, which is our principal policy document, the
3: DODI 5015.02, which is in need of update so that is going to be updated and it will likely split into two documents so that is near term there will be continued interaction with the Defense Information Systems Agency and other folks that we need to partner with to put to move this vision forward so those those relationships and those engagements are going to need to occur sooner rather than later
4: and you mentioned earlier the memorandum obviously you mentioned potential guidance and playbooks are coming as well I'm, I'm sure are those two other areas that you're off has work in process they're on the radar but they haven't you know so the team at the od is
3: really small frankly and it's a principally contract support so we have to chew as much as we can uh, you know and so they're coming i can tell you that exactly when you know it's a notional five-year strategy.
2: Mark Patrick is the chief records officer for the Defense Department, speaking there with Federal News Network executive editor Jason Miller. Find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com and subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, what does the Veterans Affairs Department do when disaster strikes one of its record storage facilities? It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. <music> Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temen on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. In July 1973, a fire damaged or destroyed up to 18 million Army and Air Force official military personnel files at the National Archives and Records Administration's National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri. These records are important for veterans who are looking to make claims with the Veterans Affairs Department. So how did the government do in helping those whose records were lost or damaged in the fire? The VA's Office of Inspector General looked to answer that very question with a recent audit. To learn what it found, we welcome Brent Arante, Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations with VAOIG. Brent, thanks for joining us.
5: You're welcome, Eric. Glad to be back on the show. All right. So lay
2: out exactly what happened at this facility. How many of these records were actually affected? I know that, you know, there is a general number of 18 million, but what did that include?
5: So the reason it's estimated that it was 18 million was That records facility at the time did not actually record the physical location of all of these records, so they're not 100% sure of all the records that were damaged or destroyed. It's estimated that those that served in the Army From November 1912 to January 1960, about 80% of those records were lost or destroyed. And those in the Air Force that were discharged between September 25, 1947 and January 1, 1964, approximately 75% of those records were destroyed as well.
2: Wow. Okay. So this might sound like a weird question, and obviously this is an important undertaking for the IG, they would like to know, but why now? Why did the IG take a look into what happened in this process now?
5: So last year... Representative Carbajal from California, through the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023, reached out to the IG and asked if we could conduct a review on this process and to see if the Veterans Benefits Administration was actually helping veterans obtain or reconstruct some of those destroyed or damaged records.
2: Okay, so we've gotten the scene set here. What efforts did VA make for those veterans whose records were damaged? And obviously, I imagine some other agencies were involved since it involved NARA and it's a GSA building.
5: Sure. So after the fire, uh, VBA developed several processes to assist veterans when helping with the reconstruction uh, process. Uh, one of the things that VBA did is they created a fairly lengthy questionnaire that they would send to veterans whose records were once the veteran filed a claim, and they, it was determined that those records were part of that fire. Uh, this questionnaire would help in the process of reconstructing what the veteran did in military service, and these questionnaires asked certain things like the what period of service did you serve in, what branch of service you were in. what units you were assigned to, and... Importantly, do they have any military records in their possession that they can submit to the NPRC to help them reconstruct their records?
2: We're speaking with Deputy Assistant Inspector General for audits and evaluations at the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General Brent Arante. So is this the standardized process for when records are damaged, you know, not just in this case? Or was this kind of a special circumstance given the amount of uh, records that were damaged?
5: So this was a special circumstance. There are special processes that VBA has created for their claims processors to follow. And that's part of the problem that we found during our audit, that they were not following these processes. And one of the processes that we think was critical and and an easy fix for VBA was to have these claims processors actually reach out to these veterans and call them. To get some of this information from this questionnaire, especially if this questionnaire was submitted and it was incomplete. Another thing that VBA would do is they would reach out to, uh, like you indicated earlier, other federal organizations or other entities that may contain or maintain some of these records, such as the National Guard, state and local hospitals, military hospitals, any area that they thought that the veteran may have served or been treated they would reach out to these entities in an attempt to identify any records they could that would help the veteran in in their claim to file for a disability.
2: Oh, got it. All right. And so what parts of the process, I know you just mentioned a few um, parts of the processes that VBA did take upon itself, such as touching base with those whose records were affected. Um, Were there other areas that VBA could improve upon? Let's get into the audit itself.
5: So one thing that the audit team discovered was these claims processors at some point would send out duplicate information and what they failed to do was clearly look at the veterans record to identify what evidence was already available and in the veterans record and instead of going that extra step they would just automatically send out a duplicate request for information and the problem with that request for duplicative information is it added approximately 73 days to an already lengthy process Another issue that we found was the claims processors were not properly trained. They received one training in their entire career on how to process requests for destroyed or damaged records. After that, there was no more training. And because these records requests are few and far between, folks were not familiar with the process and didn't know where to look in their manuals to identify the proper procedures to follow.
2: And was there any response from VA on this? And do the people who you were speaking about there, you know, do most of them even still work with the VBA?
5: So they do. The claims processors, they're called veteran service representatives. They still work with the VBA. So what we found was the veteran service representatives just were not always following policy. And because they did not see these types of requests very often, they became unfamiliar with policy and what we determined is they only had one training event throughout their entire career, and some of these folks did move into other positions, but that's the importance of having policies, right? So you have a continuity of assistance when a person moves on whether they are promoted or they leave the VA and and we found that one training event was just not enough um, also, VBA was very quick to react to one of our recommendations within about three weeks of issuing our report. VBA addressed our first recommendation where they created a modernized job aid for these veteran service representatives, and it's an easily accessible job aid. It's very clear. The instructions are very well laid out on all the steps that a veteran service representative needs to take in order to assist the veteran in reconstructing these records.
2: That's obviously going to be a new procedure. Were there any procedures that were changed or other ones created after this incident? Obviously, you just hope to not have a fire, but things happen. What did VBA say it will do to prepare for a future disaster such as this?
5: Well, one of the recommendations that is still open that we believe they're going to address is um, although this job aid is going to be a a substantial tool for these veteran service representatives, they're going to now incorporate this type of training into this specific process more regularly so folks become more aware of not only the steps to take, but where they can locate the information to assist them in the future.
2: And just out of curiosity, what happened to the records once they were damaged? Did they make copies of them and then destroy them? Because, you know, the records probably did have some sensitive information on there.
5: That's a a great question. And when we started this audit, I had that same question because we did not know. We weren't aware what has happened to those records. So here's the process. Those records are maintained at the NPRC in a temperature controlled environment. But that's it. They will not touch or try to restore those records until two things happen. Either the veteran files a claim for a disability, and then they will obtain those records. They'll see what records are available, and then they'll determine or assess the amount of damage to those records, and then they will start the restoration process. And that restoration process can be lengthy. It could be weeks to months. There's different types of processes. Um, Our team observed part of the process. We couldn't observe the entire process because they use clean rooms and and we weren't allowed in there, You know, which makes sense. And another technology that they're using that was not available 20 years ago to assist the veterans is they now have these infrared cameras that can take a picture of a charred document. And that infrared technology allows what they call lifting it can lift the typed or handwritten information that's on that document, not in 100% of the time, but it's very successful. And they can lift that, they can print it, and now they have a, a better record for the veteran. And also part of the restoration process, if the record was damaged by water, which was used, of course, to put the fire out, they also have a rehydration process that can bring some life back to these documents.
2: That's fascinating. And so you did manage to see some of these records where they actually frayed edges and everything like that, that you would think of a record surviving a fire.
5: Absolutely. There were um, we we seen evidence of just nothing but ashes. And those were considered total loss. And even in our report, we have a couple of, of photos that we added to show some of the charred documents where you can't see anything. It's just a charred piece of paper. But like I said, this this infrared technology is amazing. And they could take a picture, you could see exactly what was typed or, or handwritten. Now they did say the typed information is easier lifted than the handwritten information, but even that still comes through the process.
2: Brent Durante is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations with the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. Brent, thank you so much.
5: I appreciate it. Appreciate the time.
2: And we'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Still to come on Federal News Network, while keeping their fingers crossed about a potential shutdown, contractors have a new White House initiative to sink their teeth into. But first, the administration's DEI leaders bring some experience from work at the state level. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temen on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White, filling in for Tom. Anyone working in the last few years has likely encountered the DEI movement. That's diversity, equity and inclusion. The Biden administration expanded that by adding an A for accessibility. Our next guest led DEI in the Commonwealth of Virginia before becoming the top DEIA director at the Office of Personnel Management. She's now a new fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got the chance to speak to Janice Underwood about some of her accomplishments.
6: Let's start with with the job itself. I'm not certain exactly what a DEI officer does or what the director of DEIA, as the administration calls it. You've added accessibility. What do you do, actually, in that job?
7: I love that question, Tom, and I'm so pleased to be with you. The role of government-wide chief diversity officer is a relatively new role and has come out of executive order One Four Zero Three Five or the DEINA in the federal workforce executive order as a outgrowth of the U.S. chief diversity officer's executive council. And so I provide support. To all of the chief diversity officers in our federal agencies, whether they're in department agencies or subcomponent agencies. But as the administration has prioritized DEI and A, my team, for which I'm the director of ODEIA at OPM, we provide external support to all of the federal agencies. So I'm not the chief diversity officer for OPM, but what I am is sort of the chief diversity officer for everyone else. Specifically, we provide technical assistance to agencies that are creating and or evaluating their progress for their DEIA strategic plans. I uh, manage and supervise a DEIA learning community where I put top thought leaders and provide opportunities for the federal workforce to learn innovation as it relates to DEIA principles and do things like manage our various reporting. For example, I'm really excited to share that our OPM FEVS data has come out and we are tracking our DEIA index. We set a baseline at 69% in 2022 and my job is to um, increase that baseline uh, by six points by 2026.
6: And for a variety of reasons, organizations large and small and in the public sector and in the private sector kind of rushed in with DEI programs during the aftermath of George Floyd. But what are the proper elements generally that make up a useful DEI program in the first place?
7: I really appreciate that question. And I just want to sort of pause here to say that You know, this work needs to be done by people who have um, expertise in understanding how to transform organizations to be more effective, understanding theoretical frameworks and the practical applications of them, such as change management frameworks and organizational development, have a background also in learning and training, so that we are actually contributing to the improvement and sustainment of our organizations. This is not something, and this is not work that I recommend people do just because they have a passion for principles of DEI and A. I have a passion for balancing my checkbook, but no one's hiring me to be a CFO, right? And so just because you may have volunteered, for example, on a project or a special emphasis program or in an ERG, doesn't in and of itself make you an, a highly qualified chief diversity officer in the private sector or public sector. And so this work really needs to be work that people have a background in data and accountability to understand how we move organizations from, you know, good to great and specifically how we move our organizations across the maturity model that we've put out for agencies to use in the government-wide strategic plan for DEI&A. There are three steps that we want our federal agencies to move on um, and to move through. The initial step is like a compliance um, sort of starting at the ground zero, but we ultimately want agencies To move to step two which is called advancing and then of course step three which is called sustaining and step three is sort of the gold standard or the platinum standard where agencies are engaging in promising practices that can be used as exemplars for other agencies where they can begin to coach and support other agencies in 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 getting to that that sustaining Leading and sustaining phase.
6: We're speaking with Dr. Janice Underwood. She's director of the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility at the Office of Personnel Management. And I guess the second question is once you have those elements in place, compliance, and I guess government in some ways has been exemplary for decades in compliance with the idea of everybody having equitable access to jobs and so forth, the practice may not be the same, but at least the compliance measures have been in place. How do you measure? whether you are getting better at DEIA?
7: Well, I alluded it to this measure or metric as we think about um, our OPM FEVS uh, data, our Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. And I want all the listeners to, to know that, you know, we were thinking about how do you measure success? Because what we know for sure is you can't change what you don't measure and you won't measure that which you don't acknowledge. And so what we have done is we've acknowledged that DEIA is a priority. And so we have developed questions for all four of the letters, the D, the E, the I, and the A, and we have created what's called a DEI&A index. And we uh, have surveyed 1.6 million of our civilian employees, and what we've learned is that their perceptions are relatively positive to the questions related to all four letters. We just released our 2023 data, and what we saw was an increase in our DEIA index. And so we're really pleased to see that government-wide, our fellow federal employees have generally a very positive or increasingly positive viewpoint of DEIA according to our index. That is one of our major measurements, but also our maturity model. We will be measuring agencies and their growth and progress using the maturity model that's located in the government-wide strategic plan for DEIA, and all of our agencies created assessments and did their individual agency assessments in 2021, and have submitted their DEIA plans. All of the agencies that are required to do so under EO 14035 submitted them, and so now they're really implement. They're in the implementation phase. Now, what are we doing about it? How are we going to meet our goals? But let me be also clear, Tom, every agency doesn't have identical goals because every agency's mission is different. Uh, And so agencies had the autonomy to create their own plans and think about their own goals. And now they're implementing them and starting to track their progress. So we certainly want to understand the progress they're making, and my office exists to support them in that DEIA journey.
6: And by the way, you are, of course, a new NAPA inductee, a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. So I can kind of guess what issues you're going to be working on there.
7: Absolutely. And so I, I am super excited to be inducted as one of the 2023 fellows. I'm excited also and energized to be part of the Social Equity Standing panel. But, Tom, I've been working with that panel as a volunteer for the last couple of years now. Well, what I will tell you, and this is what I told Terry Girton and all others, is that principles of social equity and DEI&A, racial equity, all of these really, these concepts, these principles of democracy, by the way, actually belong in all of the major challenges that NAPA is addressing and so particularly, let me give you an example I'm excited to start really digging my feet in into the ethical uses of AI and the equity implications that are emerging with the um in you know increased conversations about AI because these are conversations that belong in all of the standing panels in all of the conversations across all the grand challenges and so Excited to be part of the NAPA family.
2: Dr. Janice Underwood is director of the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Accessibility at the Office of Personnel Management and a recent inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. We'll post this interview at com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, while keeping their fingers crossed about a potential shutdown, contractors have a new White House initiative to sink their teeth into. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temen on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White, filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temen here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. It'll be this new congressional leadership's first test to try and avoid a government shutdown. As usual, the ones who will be doing most of the watching will be federal contractors. There's a new initiative from the White House, though, that will give them plenty to keep busy while the waiting game ensues. To get a pulse check on the contracting industry, we welcome David Berto, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. David, glad to have you back.
8: Thank you, Eric, for having me on. Of course, of
2: course. So here we go again with a possible government shutdown looming over the horizon. What is it that you are telling folks to keep an eye on as the back and forth continues?
8: Well, the House, of course, has introduced a continuing resolution draft bill, and it's rather unusual because it has what they call the laddered approach, right? Some agencies will face a shutdown again in January, and others will have a CR that extends all the way to February. It's unusual, largely untested. There was a, a little experiment with this back in the George H.W. Bush administration, but it is true that it got the bill on the floor, and other than that, it's a fairly clean bill, What we have to watch for, of course, is do they have the votes to pass this in the House? Do they have the votes to pass this in the Senate? And will the president sign it? So those are the three elements. We can dig in each one of them.
2: By all means, yeah, let's go digging right now. Uh, What what are the chances you think that will happen?
8: So as this plays out on Tuesday, the House is back in session, and we'll be able to know by the end of the day, I think, whether the votes are there to pass this bill. There are a number of House Republicans who have said they will not vote for a CR of any way, shape, or form. More than likely, it means that uh, Speaker Johnson will need some Democratic votes, and so we're going to watch to see whether those votes materialize. The other thing we're going to watch for, last time this happened, back on September 30th, um, you know, Speaker McCarthy got a relatively clean CR passed and it needed Democratic votes, and it cost him the speakership. No indication that that same dynamic is inevitable this time, but it's certainly something that we need to watch for. Then we need to watch and see what happens on the Senate side, where they would love to have a different bill. They've got two options, really. They can pass the bill that the House passes, assuming the House passes it, in which case they send it on to the president, or they can modify and send it back to the House. Don't know which they're going to do. We should be able to see that by Wednesday or maybe Thursday. Keep in mind, Friday midnight is the deadline. And then, of course, the question of the White House. The White House uh, press secretary has indicated a potential for veto. Eric, it's useful to remember, although it's been a long time since it happened. We can get into a shutdown by Congress not passing a CR, which does happen, or we can get into a shutdown with the president vetoing the bill that the House passes. Hadn't happened in a while, but the long shutdown that we had back in 1995 was, in fact, precipitated by a White House presidential veto, not Congress failing to act. So we're going to have to see what the White House both says and ultimately what it does.
2: I was going to say, you know, even if it is a continuing resolution, there's still a lot of uncertainty in said CRs usually because things change and sometimes the agencies aren't aware of what exactly they have the funding for. Can you elaborate a
8: little bit on that? Well, as we talk to the agencies and as our member companies, I mean, one of the things that we suggest to our member companies is that they have robust discussions with their programs in advance of a possible shutdown. And they also do some internal planning. One of the most important things for companies to plan for is what will they do independent of what the government does? the ability to pay people, the ability to access funds in case you're not going to get your invoices paid. Make sure all your invoices are paid and on time. Make sure you've communicated with your programs and you know who to contact in the event of a shutdown because a lot of people get sent home and you're not allowed to communicate with them. So you need to know who's going to be there for you to talk to. Agencies are restricted by the White House in many cases, in most cases, in preparation for a shutdown, in terms of how much they can say and when. And for many programs, The program offices, the contract managers and administrators will not know if they're being furloughed under a shutdown or if they'll be required to work without pay. They won't know that until the morning after the shutdown starts. That makes it hard for both programs and contractors to plan ahead of time. Keep in mind also, contractors are the ones who take the first hit, right? So civilian employees won't get their first paycheck, But in the case of contractors, they won't get invoices paid on the first day of the shutdown because most of the time that is an immediate effect. So the effect hits contractors sooner. It's also true that the effects aren't reimbursed. So if a stop work order is issued and workers are laid off, they're not going to get back pay, unlike the federal government employees who automatically will get back pay once it comes into play. So all of those are factors that come into play as we begin to think about what happens if there is a shutdown.
2: We're speaking with David Berto. He is the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. So as maybe a way to help contractors keep their mind off of a possible shutdown, the White House announced the Better Contracting Initiative late last week. I imagine you have some thoughts on that. (laughs)
8: We do, of course. We're very much in favor of better contracting. The question is, uh, what does this initiative have in it and what's it likely to do? And it's interesting. The administration laid out uh, four prongs in its fact sheet that they issued publicly. I think you know there's some elements of positivity in, in each of those prongs. The first prong, for instance, talks about making sure that there's a common database. And we think it makes great sense for agencies to share data. In fact, probably the most important thing is to make sure we standardize data definitions first because sharing data that doesn't have common data definitions could actually end up being confusing and misleading. Cost data for contractors, uh, common cost data, that may be fairly easy for common products, you know, paper, printers, even necessarily commercial software and that sort of thing. But it's really hard for services because the question of what's common is very, very hard to define especially if, as the White House indicates in announcing this initiative, they focus on outcomes rather than input. So there's a lot of unanswered questions about protecting companies from the government misusing or misapplying their cost data or even misunderstanding what's in it. Those questions need to be resolved as you go forward on that first prong.
2: Gotcha. Okay. And so what were involved in the other prongs of the initiative?
8: Well, again, uh, it's easy to agree on the overarching principle. The second prong says agencies shouldn't be paying more than they need to. That's absolutely true. But there are a lot of reasons why one agency might not be procuring the same services as another. And those differences, uh, I think, will require more thought and analysis than the than the fact sheet analogies before we can compare those prices and make sure that the government doesn't pay more uh, than it should for what it needs. And then the third prong, boy, again, talk about agree right up front, getting contracts right the first time. Well, who would argue for getting contracts wrong the first time? So this reminds me, of course, of, of a dynamic where the government oftentimes is driving the solicitation But then as the work is performed, the actual capabilities required of the individuals performing that work requires more senior personnel, more experienced personnel, better trained personnel, and higher rates. So you get a gap between what it takes for a company to win a contract and what it takes to perform it. That's the government's fault. Right. If you write a solicitation that's different than what the work will be performed under, uh, then you're going to not get it right the first time. So obviously, we applaud that implementation of this prong. Though is not going to be easy for a lot of services contracts. And then the last prong is really about how the government buys and, and whether or not contractors are going to create essentially a, a monopoly on the on the front end. It's really important to recognize that a mentality that looks at Too much consolidation because of many buyers and only a few sellers is an appropriate application of antitrust, et cetera, for the broader commercial economy. But in the government's case, what you really have is very many sellers and only one buyer. And that's a fundamentally different dynamic. And as this prong is implemented, we would like to remind the government that if they only buy enough, For a few sellers, that's not really the fault of the companies. That's really, if the government's not buying enough to keep a lot of companies in business, they're going to have to live with the consequences of not having enough competition. So those are the way we think about those four prongs. We look forward to working with the administration as they begin to move out on these two.
2: Yeah, finishing up here, I wanted to gauge your opinion on whether or not there will be continued improvements building upon those prongs in this initiative.
8: The overarching approach of the Better Contracting Initiative seems to be aimed at better outcomes, and that we certainly applaud. It is, however, structured in such a way that a lot of the elements will focus on inputs rather than outcomes. So bridging that gap will be the first and probably most important piece. The last thing I would note, though, is, you know, it's November and there's an election a year from now. My experience, Eric, is that in an administration in the fourth year of a four-year term, there's actually a lot you can get done if you focus on what you've already laid the groundwork for and you build out on that and implement those going forward. So, again, the intent of these is something that we agree with. The implementation will be the challenge and we look forward to working with the administration on those as all of our PSC members will benefit from an appropriate implementation of these prongs. David
2: Bertot is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. David, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. It's a great pleasure and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Same to you. And you can find this interview at com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. But first... With a potential government shutdown less than a week away, military families are worried about what a government shutdown could mean for them. A September 2023 survey found that 84% of currently serving military members said they would be greatly or somewhat impacted by a government shutdown. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric has the details. Kirsten, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely. So Congress has until November 17th to pass funding. If it does not and the government shuts down, how would this impact military families?
0: Military families in several ways. You have the financial impact. There's also a potential disruption of services like health care and child care, food insecurity and morale.
2: Gotcha. All right. And so can you kind of delve into both of those areas and break down what you mean by that?
0: Absolutely. So for the financial impact, a third of military families have less than $3,000 in savings. You know, this isn't enough to cover rent, bills, groceries, childcare, when you don't know when your next paycheck is coming. To add to that more than two thirds of military families live paycheck to paycheck. And many rely solely on the service members income. So there's already a financial strain on military families that a shutdown would make worse. A shutdown could also impact both DOD and non-DOD services. For example, for DOD programs, a shutdown could impact childcare. So some on-base childcare facilities might close. Others might stay open until funding runs out. If there's a government shutdown, TRICARE. So DOD's healthcare system will cover private sector healthcare and inpatient care at DOD facilities and acute and emergency outpatient care at DOD, medical and dental facilities will continue. Additionally, wounded warrior medical care will not be impacted. However, current guidance does not address routine appointments. So if on-base healthcare workers are furloughed during a shutdown, appointments could be canceled. And then for food insecurity, a recent study found that more than 13% of military families relied on food banks or other food assistance in the past 12 months. A government shutdown could cause this number to increase as military families struggle to make ends meet and put food on the table. A shutdown could also impact SNAP and other food assistance programs that military families rely on. And to that last piece, the morale. So not being able to pay bills will impact morale. Like the 2018 shutdown that occurred around the holidays at the end of 2018 and into January 2019, this potential shutdown could happen near Thanksgiving So holidays are expensive, about 55 million people travel for Thanksgiving, all the food for Thanksgiving adds up. So not being able to do that or travel, you know, could also impact morale.
2: We're speaking with Federal News Network defense reporter Kirsten Eric. And so whenever one of these shutdowns occurs, it's always looking towards the troops. than when uh, one side is trying to make the other side, I guess, guilt trip them into doing something about it, because the troops are first and foremost on the state of mind when it comes to government workers not being paid. So what are lawmakers going to try to do to offset some of these problems that you just listed?
0: Absolutely. So lawmakers have recently you know, introduce legislation, you know, for food, childcare, and spousal employment. And DOD is also making efforts to help military families in those same areas. And then going back to kind of, you know, you are mentioning how it impacts service members. So if there's no funding, 1.3 million service members would continue to serve without pay after November 17th. But this will also impact civilian DOD employees. So that would impact, you know, hundreds of thousands of civilian DoD employees who would be furloughed or have to work without pay. So Congress has several congressional members have introduced bills to ensure service members would get paid if there is a shutdown. But none of those have passed.
2: Got it. And how have government shutdowns impacted military families in the past? As you said, this isn't the first (laughs) this isn't a lot of their uh, first time uh, dealing with this issue. Uh, What was it like for those folks uh, dealing with it before?
0: Yeah, so the last time it impacted DOD was in 2013, but in 2018, it impacted Coast Guard, which is under the Department of Homeland Security. So DOD was funded, but DHS was not. So that meant that 41,000 Coast Guard members went 35 days without pay while still performing their job. So this go around, you have several military you know, service organizations that are advocating for Coast Guard to be included in defense appropriations. You have, for example, Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican from Texas, who introduced a bill in September to make sure that Coast Guard members get paid if there's a shutdown, but that has not become law. And kind of going back to the impact of this when this has impacted whether it's DOD service members or Coast Guard service members, you know, it, kind of going back to the financial aspect, you know it's unclear how many service members or military families have had to take loans out, you know I know that's one of the ways that service members will kind of look to bridge the gap till their next paycheck. I know Navy Federal Credit Union said during the 2018-2019 shutdown that it gave out loans to 20,000 members. So that kind of gives you a glimpse of how how much of an issue this this is and how it really impacts military families.
2: And not to mention throwing in the global goings on right now, there are troops that are actually deployed at the moment. So that's just going to make things even more difficult and put even more strain, I would think.
0: Absolutely. And it just kind of adds to like the the chaos of the time and kind of, you know, I would imagine for military families who have service members abroad, that it's just, you know, another worry that they're adding to.
2: All right. Well, we will certainly keep an eye on this issue. Kirsten Eric, Federal News Network defense reporter. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. And you can find more of Kirsten's reporting on this at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to The Federal Drive also wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin.
9: and shaping that culture?
1: Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people first driven aspect. So that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So, well being is important, psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission.
9: Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project, our work. Oh, great. It's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs?
1: Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles.
9: Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake?